I'm Barry McGovern, and this is Cross Currents, an exploration of contemporary Irish composers and their music. My parents used to tell me that the only way to stop me crying when I was a baby was to switch the radio on, and I would immediately start paying attention to sound. I don't think I even knew that composers existed. It was just really fun at the time. I remember that feeling of excitement as a kid, and it was just, it was like solar plexus stuff. It was just incredibly exciting. I would improvise for hours, thumping this old piano that my parents got me. It was really opening a door into an entirely different relationship with myself and with the world. And I think once I started feeling that that was there, it just wasn't going to be possible to do anything else. With me, I put a few things down on the page and everybody began to say, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, what am I doing? Hmm, this is fun. <laughs> I was a fanatic. I just dug and dug and dug and dug and nothing would stop me. My sort of creative upbringing as, as a kid wasn't a straightforward music student, but I always knew that I wanted to switch to actually making the music, like writing the music, not just performing. I had read somewhere that Beethoven had a manuscript little book with him that in case he got inspired by nature, so I made a little one in case I was out and got any ideas and yeah, <laughs> and would transcribe things I heard. The voices there of some of the composers taking part in our series. In Cross Currents, we're looking at the formation of contemporary composition in Ireland, the legacy of its past, and the modern external influences that have shaped and inspired this music. In part one, we heard how the German-based avant-garde composers Karlheinz Stockhausen and Mauricio Kagel ignited a generation, including Raymond Dean and Gerald Barry, who both studied with them as young men. I suppose the main thing that you got from Stockhausen was a sense of architecture. From Kagel, you got a sense of fantasy, uh, fun, uh, to loosen up a bit. Gerald Barry there. We also heard how the American-born composer Jane O'Leary brought the influence of people like Milton Babbitt to Ireland, and how, while a wave of young composers emerged in the 70s, each one was discovering a unique sonic path in new music. As a young composer, you think your music can come out of nowhere. There's no beginnings, there's no, no past. Music, like any art, has to come from somewhere. My new music was not just going to be an imitation, but it has to come from the past, certainly. I was learning all the time, still am, by the way. My ears are learning. My brain and my ears. The Tipperary-born composer Frank Corcoran there, and that's his composition Balthazar's Dream we're hearing, a piece written in 1980 and premiered at the Seoul Festival in Korea. In this episode, called Expanding Horizons, we're exploring how the forces of the 70s shaped not just the music being written, 
but also the politics of the arts. And how Ireland, by the 1980s, began to create a professional structure for composition and for those who yearned to be composers. It came to me when I was 10. I can remember the, the very moment that I decided I was going to write music. And I, I remember sitting at the piano and improvising. And I remember playing a piece for the, the maid. We had, we had maids. And I remember she was fussing around and I was sitting there playing. Uh, and I uh, played something and I said to her, what do you think of that now? It's the, the latest hit. And she said, ah, no, it's not. I think you made that up yourself. And it was said in a very disparaging way. So uh, that, that kind of <laughs> discouraged me a bit, but uh, in fact, it just goaded me to take the whole thing more seriously. I did rather comical things like write to the professor of music at UCD, University College of Dublin, Anthony Hughes. I think I asked him if he would come and see me. I didn't quite understand about uh, ranks and where people stood in the world. And then I wrote to Trinity and I asked Brian Bodell if he would come and see me. <laughs> and extraordinarily, they did. When I discovered music, I didn't know such a word existed. I mean, I didn't know any vocabulary. I just knew instinctively what it was going to be. But I always had this fantastically heightened romantic sense of what these words might mean. Raymond Dean and Gerald Barry there on their youthful awakening to their craft. But what makes a composer? What drives someone to create their own music? I suppose I would have been about 14 when I really began seriously composing. Certainly for many years it was a major obsession. I would spend hours and hours and hours every day at the piano. I learned an awful lot about what other composers were doing and I kind of dabbled and tried to reproduce it and produce something that didn't remotely resemble what they were doing and I thought that was a kind of failure on my part and it took me a while to realise that that was actually the best thing I could be doing. Many composers talk of their early life as being one shaped not just by music, but by sound and the imaginary world sound creates. Linda Buckley is a composer from the generation that followed Barry and Dean. She was born into a large family on a dairy farm near the old head of Kinsale. It's a very, very special place. It really feels like the edge of the world. The land that we have on our dairy farm is right on the coast and just below the lighthouse. So I always remember hearing sounds of foghorns when I was growing up and also things like milking machines, which was very much part of my everyday musical sonic landscape. 
For Linda, the music in the house was traditional music. Her father played the accordion and the family sang together. We would always sing harmonies with each other and I think there's something very special about siblings singing together and there's a natural sense of phrasing and even when I sing with my sisters now, we don't have to look at each other for cues or for entries or anything like that. We just naturally breathe together and everything lines up. And there's something really beautiful about hearing people who know each other very well sing together. Well, I think when you grow up singing, it's such a deep part of yourself that it's something that you carry through throughout your life. And even when I'm composing now, I'm always singing as I'm composing because I feel that that's the most kind of primal instinctive part of me. And anything that I'm writing, I feel if it works well in the voice, then it will work probably well in melody instruments and things like that. So I'm always thinking of harmony and voices and how they interact. But like Raymond Dean a few decades earlier, it was making up her own pieces on the piano that began Linda's journey into composition. Even though I was studying piano, I probably wasn't so committed to trying to replicate other people's music perfectly. I felt a little bit stifled by that. I wanted to explore other things and other sounds. So I started to play my own harmonies and play my own little improvisations on the piano. And I would sometimes try to notate sections of them and I would bring them in to a very inspiring teacher I had in secondary school uh, called Mary Lorden, who really instilled in me that, that I had something and that I could work with it. So she was one of the first people outside of my own family that really told me, you have something here and you should do something with it. While those composers born in the 1940s, like Frank Corcoran, say there was poor music education in Ireland and no great legacy for them to inherit, People like Linda Buckley, who were born in the late 70s, did have Irish influences to draw upon. For Linda, it was the music of John Buckley, the Limerick composer, who comes from a similar rural and traditional music background to her. The only contemporary classical music from Ireland I would have heard at the time would have been set works that would have been on the leaving certain things of like that and would have been actually John Buckley at the time, who is no relation to me. and his great piece, Sonata for Unaccompanied Violin. And I remember thinking there was something very interesting about that, and it's quite experimental, but hearing new sounds being made on the instrument. And this was before I had ever tried to do anything like that myself. So there wasn't really a sense of strong role model from female composers yet at that stage. For John Buckley, like many at that time, his aural window on the world was the wireless, the radio. And outside traditional music, to be quite honest, I didn't know much else until the wireless arrived in our kitchen. And of course, since we didn't have electricity, it was run on batteries and they were colossal huge things, wet and dry batteries that had to be charged at the local creamery. And that totally opened my imagination out into the external world. I would spend hours twisting the dials and hearing bits of music and sounds in different languages, especially on the 
the shortwave, I think it was, from all over the world. And it was bringing, if you like, the world into our kitchen. And it was bringing my mind out to realise that there was an entire universe out there, much of it filled with the most amazing sounds. And so that was another really key element in my, my early childhood sonic landscape. Buckley remembers when he realised he wanted nothing more than a life devoted to music. I remember the precise moment, actually. There was a priest, uh, Father Pat McCarr was his name, who was a fantastic music teacher. And he, I remember him discussing and playing for us two pieces of music, which on the surface could hardly be more varied, yet because of their expressive intensity, they're very much in common. One was Beethoven's Third Symphony, and the other was a piece by Penderecki, a very famous piece called Trinity for the Victims of Hiroshima. This piece had only been written in 1959, and yet I was hearing it in 1966 in a boarding school in the middle of Ireland at that time. Can you imagine what that kind of um, ethos could do if your imagination was ready and ripe to receive it? So hearing the two of those, I was absolutely riveted by the force and the expressive power of these works, which I did not know before. And I decided this is something I'm going to have to do to become involved in. I just knew that I wanted to spend the rest of my life involved in this kind of music in some way or other. And over a relatively short period of time it dawned on me that maybe I could write my own music. Many young composers now start out by seeing composing as a career and sometimes as an enterprise and as a business. When I was starting out, this was not a possibility. None of us started out seeing music as a career. It was something that we were passionate about doing and just wanted to do. We didn't make a decision to be a composer. It was just what you had to do because it's what you needed to do for self-expression. That first time notes on a page become your own version of music is vividly etched in the memory of any composer. Roger Doyle remembers he was thrown out of his piano class when he was 16 for not practising. I was just playing poker all the time, smoking a lot of cigarettes and uh, scraped a pass in the leaving certificate and did the matric for Trinity and didn't get that either. So I was really stuck. I left school and I was sitting around the house doing nothing uh, with my parents saying, will you get out, get a job, do something, you know? I was heading for not a happy life, I think. So because of doing nothing, I would sit at the piano and start messing around. And actually, it's around September 1967, I actually composed a four-page piano piece over several months between September and, say, Christmas 1967, just after I left school, simply because I was sitting around the house bored and, and worrying about my future.
To her credit, my former piano teacher showed that four-page piano piece to Dr. A.J. Potter in the Academy of Music. Uh, I went in to meet him and I showed him this four-page piece and he, he said, OK, you start next Monday kind of thing. I was on the road then, once a week, every Monday afternoon, I had to have something composed, and I did. I came in with something every Monday for three years. When I read the diaries about the smoking and the poker and sleeping till lunchtime, you know, I don't know where I would have ended up. I really do think music saved my life and my sanity and everything. And that piece we're hearing is Roger Doyle's Piano Suite, written in 1968 when he was 19. While people like Raymond Dean, Linda Buckley and Roger Doyle talk of starting to improvise as children or teenagers, Jane O'Leary did not begin composing until she was at university at Vassar College in New York State. The piano had been her childhood friend and she loved playing classical work like Beethoven and Haydn rather than contemporary music. It was only in my final year at, at Vassar's four-year degree that composition was introduced as a subject and a young man joined our teaching staff in the music department. He was only a few years older than ourselves, a composer. So I suppose there were five or six of us in the music department and we, we signed up for these composition classes and we had no idea what it meant or what we were going to do. And I guess it was the same with me. I put a few things down on the page and everybody began to say, wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, oh, what am I doing? Hmm, this is fun. <laughs> so at the end of the year, we had a concert and everybody's pieces were performed and people came up from New York, I think, to perform them. I was so stunned to hear my music coming back at me. I just thought it was the most exciting thing. The interesting thing about writing music is that once you've written it and you hand it over to somebody else, it's not yours anymore, it's everybody's and it's a very different experience to hear it back from where you are when you're writing it and starting out from nothing and making it. But it doesn't really happen until you hear it back. And I'm still as excited as I was then when I hear a piece for the first time. It's just a thrill to have it come to life. On the page, it's in your head, it's silent, or you know, you might be trying things out with musicians, but it's not really the piece. And it's that moment when it comes alive, you hear it back, and it's real. That is the ultimate thrill. Mm -hmm. 
And that piece is Forgotten Worlds, written by Jane O'Leary in 1987. That joy O'Leary describes of hearing your imagined music come alive in a performance and seeing the reaction of the audience is one shared by Linda Buckley, a composer born just three years after O'Leary launched Concord, the new music ensemble. There's something very emotional about it because it starts off as an idea in your head in maybe your bedroom or something and then you're hearing it in this big concert hall and it's like you're sharing a part of yourself with so many people and that is a really beautiful thing. It can feel overwhelming at times but I feel so lucky that I get to share that which has been you know, a little spark of an idea in my head and then it's fleshed out in its full form and to hear that, that it manifests itself in the room with these people, it's really special. I always love meeting audience members after concerts and talking to them, especially those who don't come from music backgrounds and they might have very interesting ideas of what the music means to them. And oftentimes they'll say things like, oh, it really made me think of the sea or it made me think of a forest or they'll, you know, they'll have a kind of pictorial images of it in their own heads. And this always fascinates me is, you know, what it means to them, because, of course, it's so subjective, it's going to mean something very unique and different for each person, which I love and I really welcome. I love hearing those stories. A piece called Chio, uh, which is for symphony orchestra, was one of the first orchestral pieces that I'd worked on. And of course, a situation like that is always really daunting because you're writing for 80 or 90 musicians. And there's something about the simplicity of it in a way that I felt really, this was my very much true voice. Uh, I remember hearing the BBC Symphony Orchestra rehearse it in London. And I remember walking into the room and being sort of moved to tears when I heard them and the, just that massive sound, wall of sound when you have that many musicians in the room. But what inspires someone to devote their life to writing music? The Clareborn composer Gerald Barry vividly remembers his mid-teens when he was studying violin at the Limerick School of Music and playing in its small orchestra. to be sitting in rows of violins at that age. If God had, or the Blessed Virgin had walked in, I wouldn't have been more surprised. I remember going to a concert and leaving. Uh, I was in a, probably in a state of levitation. I just glided along the streets of Limerick in a totally altered state. And I can't remember the music that was played. Mozart might have been played, but what I remember is the color of the body of the cello, the golden color of the French horn, and it was a, a totally sensuous thing. I was totally changed. That period of my life, before I went to Dublin, I was, I think, most of the time in an altered state. It's as if I had been 
uh, taking marijuana or something. Yeah, it was, I was totally obsessed. I was completely obsessed and possessed. While Gerald Barry had enormous self-confidence, even as a schoolboy, in both his talent and his future in music, for others it was a long journey of experience and discovery to find their voice. Frank Corcoran remembers being at Maynooth in the early 60s, wanting to be a composer, but struggling to find his way. He knew what he was not, more than what he was. For me, the way forward was totally impenetrable. I didn't know where to go and how to go, and I was certainly against the London scene, this anglified stuff. I did not want to go to London for higher studies, and I knew nobody in France. So uh, the pull was then to West Berlin, to Boris Blacher. So in 1969, Frank Corcoran left Ireland and went to West Berlin to study with the German composer Boris Blacher. West Berlin was heady stuff for me. I was intoxicated uh, by the atmosphere. Now it was still a heavy, heavy prison. You felt that it was a small area and that on a Friday evening you couldn't really go out to the free world. I lived down near the, the wall in South uh, West Berlin and at night I'd hear the, uh, the shots going off and the occasional some poor devil lost his life. The secret of Blacher was that he was German but he wasn't Teutonic. He had an incredibly wide mind. He hated all kinds of intolerance and all kinds of musical fascism. You'll always get fellas who know exactly how to compose, one way to compose and nothing else. He laughed at that kind of stuff. And he encouraged you totally to seek out your own way. And he would never, never stylistically, aesthetically protest at uh, no matter what kind of garbage one presented him with. With Blacher, very often I was ashamed because I would come to a lesson and other fellows uh, from all kinds of countries had been writing all kinds of things. I was years behind. I mean, I would come into him and he'd say, okay, well, until next, next Monday, uh, try uh, four little miniatures, each one a minute long, uh, for a string quartet. Okay, I would come in the next Monday and, and he'd say, okay, how do things go? I said, well, I can't. What? I couldn't write it. Ah, uh, okay, well, we'll have to see about that. Could you try again until next Monday? <laughs> so I was deeply ashamed. But I also felt obscurely it will come out in a couple of years' time. Something will come out. I mean, I had my big breakthrough as a composer. I'd had the three orchestral pieces, and then I got the piano trio. That was my first rhythmic self-liberation where I was able to get my macro counterpoint, finally my layer on layer and layer. And uh, two years ago, we did the piano trio again. It was done at the Zagreb Biennale. Wonderful uh, Croatian musicians, uh, wonderful string players. 
And I was gobsmacked by my own work. I hadn't heard it for a long time, the piano trio. Very strong, terse, formally tight, and very expressive use of macro counterpoint of the layers. While Corcoran was exploring and opening up to new music, unlike his contemporaries Raymond Dean and Roger Doyle, he was not attracted to Stockhausen and serialism. I certainly did not feel at all pulled to the Stockhausen ethic. I, I saw that again as disguised fascism. High intolerance. And the young Boulez had been highly intolerant too. Uh, and I learned enough from Blacher that you have to have tolerance. You have to allow people a very wide range of influences and of techniques to get a richer, more complex work. I wanted color, color, color. I certainly wanted richness. I wanted uh, also rhythmic richness, which I could get with my own macro counterpoint. And again, I had learned from old Blacher that Asymmetry is more interesting than symmetry. And the greats of the 19th century, including Chopin, and in go back to Mozart, had a wonderful sense of where two symmetric music has to be asymmetrical. You'll see it in their phrase structures and so on. Beautifully hidden behind the sheen, but it's there. It was the work of the Polish composer, Witold Lutosławski, that ignited Frank Corcoran. I was just back in Dublin then, and in the old uh, Radio Aaron studios in Henry Street, I wandered in there one day and there was uh, Gerard Victory and John Kinsler and they did the best they could with all kinds of broadcasts of all kinds of styles to the Irish, ignorant public. And these big, big old radio tapes had just come in from the, the Warsaw Autumn, the Warszawska Jesieni. And uh, so maybe Sir John Kinsler said to me, Hear this stuff, Frank. Listen, this has just come in. Might have been 71 or 72. And it was finally Lutosławski's second symphony. And it bowled me over this gigantic, the preparation for a huge explosion. A big, mighty, mighty whack. And that, that, that gobsmacked me. Lutosławski also influenced John Buckley. When you're a young composer, you try and absorb the styles or the approaches or certainly the technical resources that specific composers use. But then you have to somehow blend those and find a new way of expressing what you have absorbed and engaged. I love the, the sonorities of the music, uh, the structures of the music, 
And I love the fact that in a very modernistic style, you could have an extraordinary sense of lyricism. Uh, modernity is often seen as very jagged and angular and, and angry and broken. But uh, much of Lutislavsky's music, there's a wonderful allure to the sonority on the ear. My first orchestral piece, Taller Than Roman Spears, has an entire movement that it's entirely aleatoric. I had to find a new form of notation. I wasn't yet familiar with Lutislavsky's scores, so I invented a form of a graphic notation almost to represent the sounds I was searching for in that work. It was John Kinsler who had introduced Frank Corcoran to Lutosławski. Kinsler had fallen in love with the symphonic form when he was just a boy. I can still remember hearing things like the Jupiter Symphony while I was having my lunch before going back to school and kind of marvelling at the themes, you know. So it's something I was born with, didn't ask for it, and I just loved music, you know. In 1973, Kinsler's homage to Sean O'Reader, A Selected Life, was performed. Kinsler was beginning to leave serialism and 12-tone music behind and was looking towards bigger orchestral work. Just shortly after that then, uh, my, my wife died and that had a profound effect obviously. So. I kind of dried up from composition, the point of view, and everything else. And uh, I tried to write a few times, I got nowhere with it. And then I got a commission in to write a piece for the Padraig Pierce Centenary. And they were looking for a short orchestral tone poem for that. And that was a stimulus to get back again. And I found myself writing in a much less organized way, like I was following my own instincts melodically and harmonically and things like that. And that, I suppose, was the turning point, stylistically, from the selected life. And it took off from there. And then the whole series of symphonies started up. Kinsella was writing his first symphony when he was working as head of music in RTE. He was encouraged by Albert Rosen, the conductor of the RTE National Symphony Orchestra, and it was premiered at the National Concert Hall with Rosen conducting in September 1985. I can still sit at the beginning of a major symphony, waiting for the whole thing to unfold, no matter how well I know it, and I get a tingle of anticipation about the whole thing. And I, thank God I still have those feelings, you know? It's hardly natural. Since then, Kinsler has been a prolific composer of symphonies. He's just finished his 11th, and he still works most days in a studio at the back of his Dublin home. 
this is my uh, my workplace. Um, the piano and the desk. I've had that for 30, 40 years. It's travelled with me from one house to another. And actually, the, the actual building uh, was put up with the, the fee I got for my Seventh Symphony. So each time I've finished the symphony, I said to myself, well, that's it. So I won't say that anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that the National Concert Hall itself was only opened in 1981. Until then, the usual venues for performances were places like halls and theatres. In the same year, Aesthona, the elite circle of artists within the Arts Council, was created, and Shosha Bodley, a father figure in contemporary Irish music, became a founding member. Irish composers were beginning to be recognised and given a place at the arts table. Bodley received two official commissions in that year, an orchestral work for the Irish government and a choral piece that became his third symphony for the launch of the concert hall. I was very lucky to get that, to have in the one year an orchestral work for the government and secondly to have the opening of the National Concert Hall. Looking back, Shosha Bodley thinks that in those early days, the state was more likely to make significant investment and commission major new works. Well, just in some ways, I think there was probably more opportunity earlier on than there is today, because there was financial backing for new works, which are much less nowadays than they used to be, and less easily obtained, you know. But I just feel there's less official recognition of the composers, or this, it's damn hard work, you know. If you write a large orchestral work, regardless of style, it's obviously quite something that uh, is difficult to do and takes you a lot of time, you know. So while those writing music in the 1970s often felt they were forging a new path without much financial support, by the 1980s things had begun to change and someone like John Buckley could make the decision to become a full-time composer. It was actually a very easy decision. I was very fortunate in 1982 in that I was awarded a bursary by the Arts Council. It wasn't a huge amount of money, it was £5,000, but the condition to take up this bursary was that you had to be full-time writing music for at least a year. At that period, there were no career breaks available in the teaching profession, so the only possibility, if I wished to take up this grant and work at least for a year as a full-time composer, would be to retire from the teaching post. At the end of the year, the music was going rather well and I was beginning to get quite a lot of commissioned work now. 
And so I never went back into teaching again. And in 1983, I had four or five rather major commissions. And very fortunately, in 1984, I became a member of Estona, which gave a certain financial security. I was still only 32 when I became a member of Estona. So that was incredibly fortunate. And that's support, financial and otherwise, from Estona sustained me for a long period, because even though I was getting a lot of commissioned works, the fees associated with them were never great. They were never realistic, quite honestly. So it would still not have been possible to earn a living, even though there was constant commission works coming in. Most years, there were at least three, maybe four some years, commissions that I got from various sources throughout the 80s and into the early part of the 90s as well. Part of Buckley's 1980s work, Fantasia One. Buckley briefly studied composition with John Cage. I found him to be an absolutely delightful person, full of uh, humour. He had a kind of a certain aura about him. He had a very sunny outlook on life. Um, he had the most extraordinary revolutionary ideas, of course, about what music is and what it could be, which ran, I mean, totally counter. So I'm not sure if I learned anything technically from him. I did learn how to maybe think in different ways, of course, and how to reimagine certain things. It's very interesting to me, however, that Ludoslavsky, from taking some of the absolute freedoms of Cage's music and structuring those freedoms. So it's more in that way that my technical interest would come from Cage. It would be Cage filtered through Lutislavsky. Many composers in the 60s and 70s talk of the loneliness of their trade, the courage often required to make a space for their voice in contemporary music. Jane O'Leary, as an American coming into Ireland, felt at times isolated, and the development of Ace Donna gave her not just financial support, but an artistic community. I guess I had, as a composer, felt quite lonely up to that point and have had difficulty fitting in, being part of the Irish scene in composition. And I had a lot of music which was on the shelf, wasn't going to be performed, and I just did it to keep learning. And it was at that point that I felt, well, what's the point? Can I really keep doing this? Does it matter? Does anybody care? I mean, I suppose most composers go through this stage anyway, but there was a feeling that what was the point? The election into Estona was a huge turning point for me as a composer. and. It was because it said to me, what you were doing is worthwhile and valid, and we respect that. And that is what I got out of Estona. The Irish state said to me, we believe in what you're doing.
and I couldn't believe myself that this was happening and it completely changed my attitude to my work as a creative artist. I was completely transformed by that. And then over the years, as Aestana grew and developed, I really valued the sense of community amongst artists. And I liked especially the wider context of the artists, that it wasn't just music artists. It was all of these creative artists, wonderful painters, sculptors, filmmakers, writers. And we got to know each other and to realize we all had the same issues and confidence problems and we were being recognized as individuals. But it, it became and, and is still a really important community and I value being part of it. And that piece we're hearing is Jane O'Leary's The Petals Fall from 1987. Of course, one of the essential supports a young composer needs is to have his or her music performed and recorded. In the pre-digital era of vinyl and cassette tapes, doing that was often challenging and costly. The Dublin composer Roger Doyle remembers living in the Netherlands on a music scholarship in the mid-1970s and going to hear jazz bands most nights. Every single jazz concert had an LP of the band to sell at the door on your way out. I was amazed. How come they've all got their own LPs? They're all getting them made up. And I, I asked Louis Anderson, how, how do you do this? Can I, I'd like to have an LP of my music. He says, uh, go to, and he gave me a man's name in phonogram in Amsterdam. He says, go to this guy and tell him you want to do an album of your music. All you have to do, of course, is pay him. And I saved scholarship spending money. I didn't eat much and, you know, I, I starved myself and borrowed money off various Dutch friends and paid this guy to make my first LP. So I came back from Holland after my first year with an LP under my arm of my, my first LP called Oiz No. I suppose you could say it was vanity publishing. I mean, I paid for it myself and it was hugely important for me to have done that, not for any egotistical reasons, but just uh, for confidence reasons, I suppose. Nobody ever really gave me any encouragement. Uh, I, I knew that I wasn't bad or, you know, as the years progress, you get an even maybe more secure in your belief in your own talents. And certainly that, that LP made me more secure. And I needed to sell 325 of them, made 500 uh, to break even. And I did that. I wrote every sale down in, in a little notebook. And after two years, I'd uh, made the money back. Mm. 
That album, Eyes on No, caused quite a stir. The summer of 1975, I gave a concert in the Project Arts Centre, just me. And then in, just before I went back to Holland in October 75, I had my own show in the Theatre Festival. And I'd sell them at the project. Loads of people bought them. I signed them. RTE played it. And I got interviewed in the papers. It was fantastic. Frank Corcoran remembers a similar experience. There wasn't really an expanding public for contemporary music, so it was uphill. And by about 1978, I had my first concert at the National Gallery. That, again, was very courageous for me. I just had to do it. And I, I organized my own first LP at the time. Nobody to help me. I did collection one, early chamber works, and it was good for me. These are acts of moral courage. It's musical courage too, because you're expanding, but it's, it's moral courage. Very, very lonely. And that Frank Corcoran piece, Mythologies, from his first LP, features Roger Doyle on percussion. For John Buckley, the lack of Irish contemporary music recordings before the 1990s is a real loss. My first commercial recording was made in 1985 on a cassette tape when I was 33. And young composers now at the age of 17 and 18 can issue out CDs. So I wish that option had been there. I felt that we were so slow in Ireland in getting off the ground with the development of our classical music generally and of our contemporary music. When I travelled abroad, for example, I would be presented with beautiful boxed sets of records, as they were at the time, of, say, Swedish composers and I'd hand over a cassette tape recorded off the radio and handwritten in return for that. So I suppose in retrospect what I wish is that we had moved much, much more quickly than we did. I think we're catching up a little bit now with the rest of the world. I think we were perhaps between 25 and 30 years behind the time. The fact that very few recordings of Irish music were made available during the 70s and the 80s was a terrible drawback. It's only in the 90s that that began to pick up with new recording projects. I remember making the case for a recording company for contemporary Irish music. I made this case in the National Concert Hall in front of a, a panel and, and an audience which included the Arts Council and I drew a fact to their attention that at that time there were more recordings of composers from Greenland than there were of composers from Ireland.
And that John Buckley piece, Guitar Sonata No. 1, was commissioned by the composer and guitarist Ben Dwyer and funded by the Arts Council. Dwyer performed it at its premiere in New York in 1989. Ben Dwyer sees the generation of the 70s as the turning point in modern Irish music. There was this willingness for the first time among these young, cocky, self-sure composers in a way to just say, this is where I'm going. I'm going to take this on. I'm going to embrace this. I'm not going to do some mixture of Irish and European music of a semi-tonal nature. This notion of modernism, which is embracing something totally new and totally radical, that's the big change that happens in the 70s. If you look at those composers and their early works and what they do now, they have actually developed along trajectories that they held onto in many ways. So while they were radical, they did in fact plant the seeds of their own musical idiolect and they really didn't diverge from those seeds, actually. When you listen to Raymond Dean's early works and then listen to his late opera, for example, of course his language has developed, but the revolutions within his own language have been more about development than rejecting different periods. Same with John Buckley. John has very, very carefully and consistently nurtured a French aesthetic. And Roger, of course, has been very consistent in his work with electroacoustic music and hasn't made any radical change from that. Um, and these are compliments I'm making, by the way, that they actually chose their paths. And I think because their ideas were so strong, those ideas were able to carry them through for a lifetime of change and development. And that's Gerald Barry's piece, The One-Armed Pianist. By 1986, the Contemporary Music Centre was established, creating a formal support structure for composers, and it was tasked to archive and resource new music. Yvonne Ferguson is the current director. Having a centre for contemporary music, having something that very clearly says there are Irish composers who are writing works, who are having their works performed, who are pushing their works out there at an international level. That's a very different situation to the 70s where works were maybe performed and then Raymond or Gerald have to try and push everything out themselves. Very much the composer's responsibility. We're there to support in all kinds of different ways and so we're constantly trying to make sure that there's an international profile that people know there are Irish composers who are doing really great work. Yvonne Ferguson there, closing this episode. In the final chapter of Cross Currents, we're exploring what it means to be an Irish composer today and how the current generation sees their role in society. What is their sense of an inherited tradition, their influences and their relationship with the past? We'll hear from Donica Dennehy, Jennifer Walsh and Garrett Schuldeis. I remember bringing Donica Dennehy over to England 
And I was so proud to say that Donica was my teacher and I was so proud to say well, this is like Irish contemporary music. I was really proud of that and for the first time kind of Irishness became important. You can listen back to the series on RTE Lyric FM or on the project website crosscurrents.ie and there's a wealth of additional content about the composers and their music there. Cross Currents is an Athena Media production made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland and the TV licence fee and in partnership with the Contemporary Music Centre. I'm Barry McGovern. Thank you for listening. <laughs>